I want to start then by asking you three questions, and then I'll map it out for us. The first question is, do you believe in Jesus? The second question is, do you believe Jesus? And the third question is, do you believe what Jesus believes? The journey to Jerusalem is normative for the Christian's life. This is not something that Jesus does on his own while we watch and pity him. <clears throat> this is the normal path that the Christian's life will follow. So if you find yourself this morning in a situation where you have to make a really hard decision or you have to adjust to something, if you find yourself getting over some kind of an argument that you've had or you find yourself looking at a blank wall and you don't know what the future looks like, you are not to read the Scripture and ask yourself, how does this apply to my life? You are to read your life and say, how does this apply to some point in the journey that Jesus is on because the road to Jerusalem is normative of the Christian life. Our lives take meaning as we are able to anchor events in our lives with events in Jesus's life. That's when our lives come alive. That's where we have the best thoughts. That's where we start getting direction. We start hearing that word from the Lord that seems so evasive up to now. So this is a normative path that we are all supposed to take, and it doesn't really matter where you're supposed to be in the journey we waste so much time, I think, beating ourselves up trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to be able to do by this time? I've been a Christian 10, 20, 30 years. I should. We waste too much time. It's better to just say to ourselves, where am I right now? Because that's, that's what I'm dealing with. It doesn't matter where I'm supposed to be. It's where I am. I can't make any decision other than the one that God is confronting me with today. Are you still tracking? I can't live five years from now today. I can only live today. I can only say, what is God asking from me today? And how do I do that? And what is the next step? And if I will commit to that, then five years from now will take care of itself. So along the way, you will be asked by Jesus to make huge changes. But as you make these changes, remember a couple of things. They don't all have to be made in a single day. Contrary to what you've heard in the Wesleyan tradition, all of this can't be settled here at the altar. You can make a decision here, but then you have to go live out the arduous task of a different life somewhere else. The decision is important, but the life that follows even more so. After every wedding comes a marriage. So you need the decision, but you also need the life. And the second thing you need to remember is every time he asks you to make that decision, he is always asking you to trade up. This is always an offer to trade up. 
Now, it won't always feel like that because you have been indoctrinated as I have been by the culture. But if you understand Jesus, he is always telling you a better way. You, you just may not feel it. Now, back to the questions. It seems to me that you can take these three questions and you can put them over the road to Jerusalem. I mean, as you travel with Jesus, there are always forks in the road. And those forks are seasons of decision and departure. We have a decision to make, and then if we make the right decision, there's a departure from the life that we used to have. So far as I can tell, there are three of these major decisions, or if you will, forks in the road. The first one is the decision to, it's on the screen, so if I ever get lost, you can just look at the map. The first one is the decision to either believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus in the New Testament, you are putting your faith in a series of statements that Jesus makes about himself and about you. That's all you're doing. Prove it, read the book of Acts. 14 sermons in the book of Acts, and all of them call the people who don't know much about Jesus to believe in a series of claims. Acts chapter 2 is a classic example of this. He says, this Lord whom you have crucified, God made both Lord and God. You see what he's saying? He's laying the claims of Jesus' nature. He is the Son of God, and he belongs to God. He is superior to everyone else, and in this case, he has died on the cross. And in our case, evangel, we'd say, he will forgive you your sins. Those are claims that are made about Jesus. And the first decision that disciples make is the decision to believe in Jesus as opposed to not believe in Jesus. Here, are you tracking? The key words here are faith and commitment. I'm putting my faith in a series of claims that Jesus has made about himself. He is the Son of God. He is who he said, and I am who he said, and I'm asking him to do certain things in my life. I am committing my life to him. So instead of taking that way, I'm going to take this way. And this is the first leg in the Christian life. But invariably, as you move along, Jesus will start saying things that I promise you, you do not agree with. He says that you should forgive your enemies. No, let me dial that up. He says you should love your enemies. You should pray for those who persecute you. Most of us in this room have stopped praying for ISIS if we ever started a long time ago. He said that we should give our money to people who cannot pay us back. Most of us would say, that's a bad loan. Jesus said, no, that's the way of a disciple. He says, when you mourn, you are comforted. When you are hungry, you are full. When you are poor in spirit, you own the whole kingdom. When you're meek, you run the world. 
But most of us, when we hear these teachings of Jesus, they seem, well, they just seem so ideal. They seem like superbolies to us. We seem like, well, there he goes again, talking like that. So we have another decision to make, isn't it? Now we're either going to believe in Jesus or we're going to believe Jesus. <laughs> and if you believe Jesus, what you do is you start practicing what Jesus said to practice even if you don't believe in it. Now this is hard because Christians like to think of ourselves as being authentic. And we think, well, if I don't genuinely believe in it, then I'm not being authentic. Yes, you are. You're just not there yet. But you're somewhere in the journey. So a second major decision or season in a believer's life is when they start going out on a limb in practicing stuff that Jesus said to practice when it is counterintuitive. So the first time we got broke into by a 14, 15-year-old kid, caught him in the house. And I went back and looked. He had ruined some of the back bedrooms, thrown everything out of the dresser onto the floor. I was okay with that. Stole some other things, the rings and stuff. I was okay with that. But when I noticed that he had busted my little boy's piggy bank, I was livid. Now he sits in my living room waiting for the police to come. And while we're waiting, he suddenly says, you know what, I'm going to get up and leave. I thought to my, in fact, I said it to him. I said, I hope you try. This will be the best night in my life in a long time. You go ahead. And he sat there. The police came, said, we recognize this guy. He was breaking into the public schools two weeks ago and in someone else's house before that. We were broken into three more times by this kid. Once when he backed the car up into the garage and loaded everything up. I'm a pastor at this point. So outside, I'm faking it because that's what pastors do. But inside, I'm saying, I believe Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, pray for your enemies I can't get there. And someone said to me one day, well, are you praying for this kid? I said, no. He said, well, he is your enemy, isn't he? Yes. Why aren't you praying for him? I can't. And at that moment, I, I was at that fork in the road. Do you hear it? And something happened on a run one day. I had a conversation with Jesus, and I said, listen, I'm going to be very honest about this. I think you're wrong about praying for your enemies. <laughs> All I can see is if we forgive our enemies, we just become victims for the... Is that not what some of you have said? We just become... If I let that ex-spouse of mine do that, I just become... Is that not what you have said? We just become victims of somebody else's crimes. That is not a better life. But nevertheless, I said, because you have called for it, I will do it. And I will do it faithfully. And I begin to pray. God, 
change this kid's life. And something happened. Gradually, over a period of weeks, I started to forget about the stuff that I lost. I wasn't as angry as I was. I discovered over a period of one or two months that the real winner when you forgive your enemies is not the enemy. It's you. It's you. And later in my life, it occurred to me, Jesus is not just moral. He's right. <laughs> this actually works. So I came in here about eight, nine years ago, sat over there in the dark sanctuary, and as staff in our church were beginning to elevate and get opportunities, and people were beginning to come and talk to them, I was feeling like my, like my power in, in our church was, was going down. And I found myself, you know, grasping for power in weird, insidious ways. It's when you start making a decision just because you can, just because I'm the leader here. <laughs> Some of you have done that, haven't you? Uh, and, 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 and I noticed these tendencies. I didn't know what to do with it, and it was over there where I sit in the morning dark room. I said, Lord, um, I know what you say about power, that by giving it away, you actually have a different kind of power, not the kind you used to have, but it's a different, more holistic, I should say, safer, safer. Nobody wants to work for you with that power. It's a safer kind of power. Now, here's the deal. I don't believe you're right about this. You're like, dude, you were our pastor? You were having that conversation? But because you say it, I will let go of power and start giving it away. We'll elevate others. We'll give them glory. We'll give them power. We'll give them credit. Then I'll take the bullet. And, 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 as, and as I start to practice this, you guys, I discovered in the last eight or nine years, this is not just the moral thing to do. This is actually the best version of power. So now, when I feel like I'm giving away power, I don't feel like I'm being a Christian. Someone would say, oh, that's so humble. No, this isn't about humility this is just smart. This is just smart. If you do this, you thrive, and if you don't, you wither. So the key here is instincts. At the first one, you're making the decision to follow Jesus. At the second fork in the road, you form habits to do what Jesus calls you to do, even though you don't really buy it. And then at the third juncture, you form instincts where they become your involuntary responses. Your primal response is to do what, so that even if Jesus didn't do it, you'd do it anyway. Because it just makes sense. That's the end of the first sermon.
Most spiritual formation, most spiritual formation is done right here. It's trying to talk people into acting like Jesus, and they don't really believe he's right. The truth is they don't believe he's right. Anytime you talk about your Christian life in the language of what you're supposed to do, you're at that juncture. Whenever you say, what would Jesus do? You're at that juncture. The question over there is, what do I want to do? Because that's what I'm going to do. And it just turns out being what Jesus would do. You understand? That's a totally different level of discipleship. Where a person's primal responses are being transformed. I think you can fit almost any subject into that spiritual journey. And what's happened to me on a few occasions is that I have found out that when I do what Jesus would do, he ends up being right. And, and now, if I never got the rewards, I wouldn't trade that in for anything because I truly believe he's right about that. Any person thinking would do that. Now the second message. This then is how I interpret the story of two characters. One is the rich young ruler, and the other is Zacchaeus. Whenever we talk about the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, we're talking about possessions. But be careful about this because when we think about possessions in the church, the defenses go up. We have fallen into what Christian Smith and Michael Emerson called discretionary obligation. Back in 2008, when they released their report called Passing the Plate, they said the predominant view of possessions in the evangelical church is that we're supposed to be generous with our possessions, but how we do it and how much we give and to whom we give is completely up to us. That's the discretionary part. I know that I'm obligated, because I'm a Christian, to support the kingdom, but how I do it, how much I do it, and where I do it is completely up to my own discretion. In other words, in my giving... As in every other area of the American's life, we are in control. We have so fashioned God in a way that he cannot ask for something I don't agree with. Because we'll reinterpret him. Right in front of you. <laughs> we do this with the rich young ruler. We say, well, the rich young ruler was asked to give up everything because he was obsessed with possessions. I, on the other hand, am not obsessed with my possessions. And so God is simply asking me to be ready to give up everything, should he ask, thank God he never does, then I have 
the right view of so so to be very clear about this you're right about the first part when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler he is not making a statement that says everyone who follows me has to give up everything you own distribute to the poor before you can come and follow me in fact when you get to the story of Zacchaeus you will learn that here is a fella who does not give up everything that he owns. He only gives up half of it. And Jesus said, you are a child of Abraham. So clearly, the pattern here is not simply to say, we all go home today and just divest ourselves of our retirement accounts. But it is a chance for us to say, in the area of possessions, Jesus is going to confront us and make claims that we're not going to agree with. And then you're going to have a decision to make. You're either going to believe in Jesus or you're just going to flat believe Jesus and do something that is hard and unnatural and very unrewarding for you. But what you'll find is if you actually believe Jesus, it will lead to a life and a relationship with your possessions that is fundamentally different. And you'll look at yourself someday and say, doggone it, why did I do this like 20 years ago because he's right about this part of being a disciple is the right use of possessions we cannot make the rich young rulers mistake which is to be pious and devout and then leave the subject of possessions over to the side. Like it's not really part of our spiritual life. So here's what happened really fast, and then you'll see the difference. While Jesus is walking on the road to Jerusalem, a rich ruler approaches him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the life to come. How do I get the life of the age to come? Pause for a minute. Think for a second what heaven is going to be like. Really, just push pause. Think of a couple adjectives. Don't think about streets of gold and jasper. That's, that's materialism. Think, oh, I'm going to be rich then. Yay. Think about the state of being. What will your interior world be like? What will be the state of your heart? What will you feel when you step into heaven? Do you have good words for that? What the rich dude is asking is, good teacher, how do I get that now? We're not just talking about heaven. He's talking about the state of heaven. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. You see, good, good teacher to the Jewish mind is not an adjective. It's a superlative. It's like calling somebody the most reverend. Nobody calls me that. You say that for the Pope or for the Archbishop 
You don't just throw that around. So when he says, good teacher, he's already half believing in Jesus. I know some of you are going to put brakes on that. I'll put it to you like this. Ain't none of his disciples called him that yet. So his phrase for Jesus is at least as good as anything the disciples have said up to this point, and this is year three. Are you with me? So he already believes in Jesus, at least in some form, but then he says, how do I have this life to come? And Jesus said, you know the commandments, and he lists four or five commandments, and then the guy in stunning fashion says, oh, I've kept all those since I was a boy up. Man, I checked out. I was like, dude, I haven't. <laughs> I mean, this guy is pious. So here is a man that is conservative, he's pious, he's successful, he's together, he's popular in the public, he's the ideal board member. And he says, I've done all these things, and, 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 and yet I'm asking myself, there's still something missing because he's seeking eternal life. Every rabbi in the New Testament would have given him the same answer. If you keep the Ten Commandments, you will have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. And the guy said, I've done the Ten Commandments, but there's still a hole in my heart. There's something missing, man. It's inside or over or something, those commandments. It's not working for me. He is the perfect description of the quintessential overly religious person who grew up in church and has said everything right and done everything right and yet at night they just think it's this isn't life it's not working for me there's something wrong oh my heart goes out for people like this I was one for so long I'm talking to Doug Porter he texts me one day he never texts me he says you know you use the phrase extraneous in your sermon do you know what extraneous means in math I thought well of course not do I look smart to you dude I barely got through algebra he says this is going to be a really coarse answer you will fix it I read your email a couple times I still don't get it but here's here's the summary of it he said an extraneous answer in math is when the answer is done correctly. You've done everything right, but it still doesn't resolve the whole problem. Here's a real simple way to say it, Doug. You're going to buck your head. It's a 50-cent answer to a $2 problem. None of the answer is wrong. It's just insufficient. It doesn't cover all that the problem is calling for. And I thought to myself, so much of our religion is an extraneous religion. We have done everything right. There's nothing wrong with what we have done. But it does not solve the problem of the human heart. Jesus does not want to create an army of people who are simply obedient. He wants to create an army of people who would do it anyway. Do it anyway. You understand this? He does not want your habits. 
He wants your instincts. You just can't change your instincts until you change your habits. We have a short, simple, evangelical formula that is perfect except for one thing. It don't work. That's the rich young ruler. I've kept all this stuff. Jesus, knowing that there is something more, he who knows what is in a man says to the guy, there is still one thing that you lack. Sell everything you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you will have eternal life. I was, reading, um, I was reading the book Paradox of Generosity this week about a 10-year study in generosity. You know what they said? They said, when people are more generous, their lives are fuller. The things that they possess, they truly value. When people are not generous and they hold on to things, over time, the things they hold on to lose their glimmer. They become less valuable to them. Now, now here's the part that rocked my little world. He said, this is not just some philosophical or religious teaching. This is pure sociological fact. And with 10 years of data to prove it, he lays out the argument that people who live generous lives open up to the world. They become nicer, more whole, happy, well-adjusted, physically stronger specimens than people that are not generous. And it shed new light on Jesus' teaching. If you want life, real life, here's the thing you got to do. You have to learn to open up with your possessions. He was not making a religious platitude. He was stating a pure sociological fact. This is true whether I say it or somebody else says it. This is the way life works. Do you see it? And so the decision that the rich young ruler is asked to make is either to continue believing in Jesus or now he's got to decide whether he wants to believe Jesus and he can't do it. He can't get there. He says, I still believe in you. You're still a good teacher with great things to say, but I cannot risk everything you're asking me to risk. Not this, not now. And he goes away sad. He's not angry. He's, That's odd. Every time I talk about people's money, they get mad. This guy, it's like he knows the onus is on him, man, and he knows it. He can't escape it. This is my fault, not Jesus's. Enter Zacchaeus. Here's the tax collector. Everybody knows tax collector. I mean, if you knew one, would you like them? 
And they have a reputation in Jesus' day as being cheaters. There's a good reason for that because they used to place bids with the Roman government. They'd look at their region, say Judea, and they would say to the Roman government, I can give you, let's say, a million dollars in taxes. I will guarantee that to the government. Okay, then what they would do in response for those rights to collect taxes is they would go to the citizens and they would collect as many taxes as they could and anything more than a million dollars they got to keep. Now that's a system. And since the citizenry was largely ignorant of the tax laws, just like Americans are, they could play the tax laws any way they wanted. And so the money that a tax collector had was not only great sums of money, but everybody knew how he got it. He cheated, he ripped people off in order to get it. So when Jesus goes into Jericho and this guy wants to see Jesus, he climbs up a sycamore tree and tries to hide in the broad leaves. Jesus stops under the tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus? calls him by name and says, you have to come down because I must go to your house today. In other words, a trip to your house is built right into the journey to Jerusalem. I can't get to Jerusalem until I stop at your house. Something is going to happen at your house. And when they get into his house, in front of all of the religious leaders, Zacchaeus just speaks up and volunteers the information. He says to him, Jesus, guess what? Half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if anybody's been cheated... I pay them back four times what they were cheated. You understand, the law only required a 23% tithe. And if you cheated somebody, you only had to pay them back the full amount plus 20%. So you had to pay 120%. But what Zacchaeus just said was, here, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've cheated somebody, I give them four times. Now, here's the part that'll shock you. In the original language, you don't have to interpret this as if it were a pledge. This is written in a tense that can be interpreted as something Zacchaeus is already doing. If this is true, then what Zacchaeus said was not, here, Lord, I will give half of my possessions. What he said was, here, Lord, even before I met you, I've been giving half of my stuff away. And I have a practice of paying somebody back four times if I cheat them. And I haven't even met you. In other words, even before you said it, I was doing it. That's a new level. This is not obedience. This is a guy using common sense that has been totally rewired. 
Now, you have two characters. The rich young ruler who says, I follow Jesus, but what do my possessions have to do with that? And the defenses sort of go on. They go up. Or it's Zacchaeus that says, a life of generosity is the only life that makes sense. You just do it because that's how people thrive. Other people and you. And oh, by the way, Jesus happens to call for this. <laughs> on the road to Jerusalem. I, I think every time we raise the subject of money in the church or possessions, the defenses, if this will help you, I don't want your money. And you don't have to give it here. Now, every member of the stewardship and finance is bristling. No, let me be very clear. One more time. You don't have to give it here. Other organizations profit because churches teach people how to be generous. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not trying to raise money. I've told you that. I'm trying to raise disciples. And it's occurred to me that we can't be true disciples if we don't do something different with our possessions. It is inextricably tied. There will be a roadblock, a ceiling beyond which you cannot go until you develop new instincts about your possessions. So you can argue about that if you want and say, well, we, here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you go home today and you have a conversation with your spouse and you say, honey, you know what? We should pray about this, you and me, and we should not talk about this for seven days. And then let's get together after seven days and let's ask ourselves, what do we think Jesus wants us to do that we are not currently doing? Say it again. What does he want us to do that we are not currently doing even if we don't believe in it? And you'll be at a crossing the road. You're going to say, you're going to continue to believe in Jesus or are you going to actually believe Jesus? If he's wrong, you're dead. You want to roll the dice? So, so you go home and you say, what is he calling us to do? And then whatever that becomes clear when you get together and you talk, then you say, let's do that. Let's put a practice into our life that will help us do this. Even if it seems hard and awkward and there appears to be no reward, we don't feel as happy as Steve said we would feel. Let's just do it anyway. And over time, do you know what will happen? <laughs> Your life will open up for you and he will... <laughs> He will call out of you bigger sacrifices, which are not sacrifices at all. Don't be like the disciples. We've left, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, <laughs> anyone who follows me gets back a hundred times what they left. See, that'll dawn on you someday. When, when generosity becomes part of your life and you do it naturally because it's who you are, not just because it's right, you'll discover you never gave away more than you got. Ever. Not possible. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, this is another one of those hard teachings. Oh, my. 
this morning you confront us not only all the way over there, you confront us with the only decision that we can make today. Help us with ears to hear, to hear what you say to us. Let me ask you a question or two while you have your heads bowed. Are you closer to the rich young ruler or are you closer on the spectrum to Zacchaeus this morning? Are you a little conservative or are you tend to be a lot more generous? And the second question is, does Jesus have the right to call for things in your life that are uncomfortable or awkward for you? Have you given him permission to call for things that are hard for you to do and you don't see why you should have to do it, but because he has that authority, will you say to him this morning, you have that authority in my life. I will confront this matter of generosity. The, the third question is, what decision confronts you today? Maybe some of you just need to begin the practice of giving things away even if you don't quite see how that economy works, but you do know Jesus called for it. If that's the decision, that's a big decision. And if it confronts you today, do you have the courage to make it? Will you have that conversation?